Hey everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and I'm believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlist clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Decoded playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, you definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com slash sleep with me that's spoke.com slash sleep with me check it out uh and i'll see you in golden gate park at stowe lake bye guys finding quality denim jeans is tough and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh almost impossible but at distilled spelled d-s-t-l-d you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use a promo code FERAL and check out and get it a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super-duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. And if you like my theme music there, that's a band called Les Blanks. Check out more of their stuff at lesblanks.com. Um, today my guest is, uh, he's been on the show once before. He's MacArthur Genius Award recipient, winner, Ken Vandermark. He's an incredible jazz saxophonist and composer. Uh, one of my favorites to listen to in the world. And... Uh, this is just such a great conversation. I think you're going to really, he's just, I, I, when I, I had him on before and he's always just very insightful and inspiring and uh, he's, uh, he's passionate about art and, and, and what's going on in the world. And we just, we get into a lot of really great stuff and it's great that I'm just talking about what you're going to listen to <laughs> really good, uh, podcastmanship from my behalf here i'm riddled with allergies i woke up looking like i got beat up by joe pesci and goodfellas my eyes were swollen so it's, it's amazing that i'm even speaking right now um something that happened though during this conversation uh, i've been doing a lot of focusing on what's going on with the president and how he's just really destroying our world <laughs> and it's important but we we moved away from that a bit and we talk about it's effect on his effect on uh, it's it's for him is actually better than his he's more of an it or a thing than a human uh so maybe i'll keep with to keep calling him it um but uh we talked about some other subjects on here that made me just felt good to get away from focusing on on the orange fuckhead so much so I think in the coming weeks, uh, you know, uh, that my show inevitably ends up being social political just by the nature of the people I'm attracted to and who I am as a person. Uh, so that's not going anywhere. And I feel like this show has constantly, I mean, it, in the 
been morphing into different things and taking on different shapes and themes as it develops. And and isn't that what it's supposed to be, everybody? Uh, it is great that we have to have... Uh, I just, real quick... It's just baffling we live in a time that we have to have a march uh, to protect science and logic. <laughs> That's the world we live in. And as my friend Pat McCartney just said, he's like... He's like, oh, next we need to have a march for keeping money out of politics or getting money out of politics and keeping Christianity out of our schools. And it's like, that's the nightmare world we live in where we have basic, like logic is something we have to defend. <laughs> ah, what a world. What a world. Uh, real quick, if you, if you, if you haven't ever reviewed my show on iTunes, please do so. Also, I do have another podcast here on Feral Audio that I do with, uh, my wife, Kelly, about parenting, and uh, we talk to comedians and musicians about how uh, how your world changes once you make a, a life. So please check that out, and uh, go to my website, themattdwire.com, follow me on Twitter and all that stuff. And uh, again, uh, please check out the music of Ken Vandermark. Go to his website. Ken, I, I believe it's kenvandermark.com. Google Ken Vandermark. Watch some videos of him playing and uh, listen to his... He's a monster on the saxophone. Uh, you'll be glad you did. And uh, here's my conversation with him. Thank you. I noticed that there's a lot of your music on uh, that streams on Apple Music, but not everything. Is that a conscious choice, or is there... Are you... It it depends on the labels. Like in general, like the stuff I put on myself, I try to consolidate it uh, because people can hear things on Bandcamp pretty easily. And I just, but some of the labels I work with make the stuff available through Apple, and 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 some I think actually do it with Spotify. Although I'm not really psyched about that, but it's it's kind of like individual policy, so that's why it's inconsistent. I was always because I know some artists are kind of against. Streaming their music and and uh, in those in those forms, but like places on Bandcamp, mm -hmm. it's it's financially more rewarding for an artist, isn't it? Or am I wrong? Yeah, in general, that's true. And I mean, I think that's why a lot of people, uh, you know, independent musicians or whatever who aren't, you know, work with major labels, tend to use Bandcamp because the platform uh, is the most successful so far in terms of. Uh, the economic uh, compensation for the work and you can control how it's used more directly as well. Like, you know, people can listen to a track a couple times for free and then you can limit that in case, you know, you want to push them towards getting paying for the track or buying the whole album. In the case for me, it's always more interesting to have people purchase an album because it represents the work better. And, uh, but Bandcamp is a pretty, of the platforms out there pretty good. And there's been so much, how would you call it, um, difference of opinion about letting people stream material for free or pushing them to buy it immediately. The, the statistics get read like in both ways that one way, you know, that allowing people to download stuff for free or stream it for free, um, kind of encourages them if they're interested to buy the material. And in my case, I would say that I believe that, that most of the people that follow the music are fans of the music and fans of the artists and want to support it. And everybody's doing things on such a grassroots level. There's a lot of knowledge of that. And in general, people tend to buy the, the material if they like it. So it's, it's kind of good to offer it to them. Yeah, I prefer, I'm glad that there's been the vinyl resurgence because I've... I just... I miss holding and looking at something while I listen and reading. It's... Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the experience we grew up with, and I think it's better for the art form and, and in general that, mm -hmm. that you have that experience. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see how all this stuff has changed. Like you said, you know, we, we, we had LPs in the house when we grew up, and we bought LPs. And in general, the technology, you know, in the 20th century, like, quote-unquote, improved. You know, you had... Uh, 78s, and then you, you know, you had it moved to like the long the LP platform, and then it moved to CDs, and it kind of always, you know, there was cassettes in there as well, and it always kind of seemed like the technology was getting quote unquote better. 
And then it got to the point where once it was digitized, it was very, very easy to, to rip it and to use that platform with, with the internet. Um, the, there was less interest in the uh, artifacts, so to speak. And uh, I think that that shift was one of the things that helped hurt the record industry was like their, their greed at trying to profit at every turn and the cost of CDs before things really collapsed. I mean, I think towards the end when Tower was still around, like a, a standard CD was like seventeen ninety nine, and they cost, for a major label, they were costing a lot less than a dollar to manufacture. So the profit margin on that was insane. And all these kinds of things contributed to, to where we are now, where there's so many people disenfranchised with the interest in supporting the artist because they can get almost anything for free online. You know, so why should they, why, how do you make the argument to a teenager that they should purchase uh, a recording by a, a musician they like when they can get shareware that is incredible software for free and they can stream the stuff or download the stuff or rip the stuff for free. Um, you know, it's hard to tell, say to them, hey, you know, if you, you spend the $5 or the $10 or $15, towards this record, you're really helping support the activity of these musicians because if they're not making money, they can't make more recordings. It's just that simple. Yeah. Do you feel that, the, because so many people just listen to songs or buy a song or download a song, that it's hurt the sort of the, the overall art form of creating an entire album? Um, it's hard for me to say because I don't follow popular music or contemporary popular music. Uh, really, really closely. I, I hear groups that I like, like the Sleaford Mods, and I follow them. But there's like a lot of stuff going on that I'm just not aware of. I would say in popular music, one thing I found very interesting, someone asked me to write some liner notes for a record of theirs, and I just made the assumption that the shifts in the kind of platforms to access music that exist now in 2017 as compared to, let's say, the 70s, um, it sort of eradicated the profit margin for popular music. But the truth is that singles sell almost identically as, as when the LP was in its heyday. And so the, the creation of an LP, like actually having a record, that's just not a collection of songs, but like actually uh, utilizing the format of two sides, how you put the songs in order and all that, that art form, um, I would say there's probably an impact on that, but a lot of musicians now really are working with the LP as the format. And the CD, the, the decision to make the CD, I don't know, 70 plus minutes was based on the length of Beethoven's Science Symphony, which is a pretty arbitrary demarcation point for how long something should be. I mean, I like the Ninth Symphony a lot, but there's a lot of, I don't know why they chose that. And then you've got something that's almost twice the length of an LP, and you've got people trying to fill that space because everybody wants to get as much as they can for their money. And, you know, most popular music isn't designed to be 70 minutes long. And so you've got tons of filler in there in general, you know, and, and, and that hurt things as well because people don't want to wade through a bunch of stuff that you they hit turns they like, you know. So I don't, I don't know, you know, to answer the question, I'm not sure how it has impacted things, but it's interesting to see a shift and uh, the, this revival of vinyl, which is in a way a technological step backwards. But in terms of the actual interface with music, maybe it's a return to a better situation where, you know, you have to get up off your butt and, like, turn the record over. You have the artifact, and without question, the LP jacket is one of the great design pieces possible. I mean, the size is incredible. The artwork looks incredible compared to like this tiny, like coaster sized CD uh, jacket, you know? So there's all these, these are these things that made the object interesting have resurfaced. And that's really, uh, I think been a positive change in, in what's going on with music now. I, I was curious if too, if that was people, uh, if people were getting tired of it just seemed like society in general was this, you know, everything's streaming, you don't have anything to hold. And I feel like maybe people were kind of hearkening f for a different time a little bit as well. Like they wanted to slow down and experience something opposed to this fast paced bullshit we've been living in. 
that's, I mean, I'm sure the psychology is there for that. And I think a lot of, I mean, the vinyl thing, if I understand the history correctly, kind of maintained because of DJs and, and them, you know, buying LPs to spend stuff. And that kind of maintained it for a long time because of that. But now it's like, I mean, I've got, I'm friends with Bob Weston who, who, from Shellac, and he's uh, got a mastering studio in Chicago, Chicago Mastering Service. And when they started, they thought, you know, let's let's cut vinyl. Like, let's learn how to do that, because he and Jason Ward, who started the, the company, were just curious about how to do that, because they were both engineers. They were both fascinated by recording music. And uh, they put in a, a lathe in the studio kind of on a lark and there was a DJ culture in town and they, and they initially were cutting vinyl for, for DJs, but that thing was completely exploded. Like making vinyl, like cutting the lacquers is, I would say probably the majority of what they're doing now. And initially it was a mastering studio to master digital recordings and, you know, do some vinyl stuff, but it's completely flip-flop. And that's because young people are buying them. You know, they've got disposable income there. I mean, I can remember like eight years ago, seven years ago, walking into Newberry Comics on Newberry Street in Boston. And I'd always buy records there when I'd visit family. And I walked in and the whole place was like suddenly more than half of it was vinyl. I thought, oh, there's, there's you know, selling old records. And it was all new stuff. All the, all these bands were putting out new vinyl. And that was like, what the hell is going on? And, and that's, I think, um, this nostalgia, in a, in a way, is a weird one because for you and I, let's say we grew up with the stuff and we bought LPs. For people who are 20, they weren't around, but their parents played LPs. And so this whole association with that experience is connected to family, connected to their youth in a way that's different than for us, which was like a direct uh, interaction with, with uh, vinyl. They're coming at it after the fact, and there's something special about their relationship to it, which is different than ours. And I think it's also helped create the market for, for vinyl again. Yeah, I mean, I think about that with my my daughter. I I want it's something I want to pass down to her because it's in because you know I'm hoping that maybe I mean she has an interest in music as at a young age, but I'm like I would like her to have that expanded knowledge, and I think. You don't get that when it's just shit crammed in your computer or streaming. It's mm-hmm. it's more of a learning experience when you have these things to flip through and explore when you don't know yeah. a lot of music. Absolutely. I mean, that was the great thing about going to a record store. You know, the loss of the record store, I mean, that's been a resurgence. That's been great, too, is that, you know, in Chicago and, you know, I mean, going to Louisville, Kentucky, and it's like, holy crap, there's all these independent record stores in this town, you know? And that's like a, that resurgence, too, is like going in, finding stuff. I mean, you know, you can go to Amazon, and you can get everything. And they have a search engine, which makes suggestions, but, like, to go to a record store and talk to the person at the counter, and they have, like, John Coltrane, you know, what do you recommend? He says, well, check out Pharaoh Sanders. You're like, who the hell is that? And you've got them in the stacks, and you go and look, or whatever it might be, you know, this kind of face-to-face discussion about about the, the music itself and then bringing that home and and having, like, basically all of these uh, references, both in terms of the information on the backside, uh, the liner notes, you know, that the art form of writing liner notes and, and that whole thing, you know. Um, and I think the duration of the LP is also connected to people's attention span. I mean, 40 minutes is kind of, you know, especially like in my background with jazz music, a 40-minute set is, is a reason it's 40 minutes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people can pay attention that long, including the musicians. You know, the focus, and then you come back and play another set. You know, you play a side 20 minutes, and you like it, you turn it over. If you don't, you put on another LP. I mean, the human capacity to listen with focus has a limitation. And, and the LP kind of zeroed in it was a perfect combination of what was technologically feasible and what could be put on an LP versus uh, what was the capacity of listening, which is like, you know, that's got a limitation too. And I think the CD exceeded that limitation. You know, most people would play the first, you know, half of the CD and never get to the second half because it was just too damn long. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, 
with records and stuff too, that's how I learned about, like when I first got into jazz or took an interest in it, somebody was said, buy a Miles Davis album, see who plays on it, and then buy those albums, buy those guys. And that's, yeah. and that's how, and that's how I always, I would look at whoever played on the album and search to see what they had done. And that's, you know, then it became a, an addiction <laughs> and, uh, th and thousands and thousands of dollars. <laughs> um, do you, the sort of to get, change gears a little bit, there's one thing that when uh, Donald Trump got elected, a lot of people were saying how this is going to be good for art and, and music. Uh, and I, I was wondering if, what your take is on that and why people think that way that like some kind of turmoil in our country is good for art uh i'm probably in the minority position on this but i don't i don't buy that i, I think that good art is not always politicized and that didactic art tends to be usually not very good i think that that you know we've had like some atrocious political periods in my lifetime, you know, starting in my like political, let's say awareness with Reagan and kind of moving from there. And I find it very interesting. If you look at like the underground rock music of the eighties and the kind of voice of rage in a lot of that music, um, disappears later. And I think, I mean, my own interest in, in like what was happening on SST and what was happening on the West Coast and East Coast uh, with, you know, the punk scene and the hardcore scene and whatever. I mean, they didn't think they were going to get played on radio. You know, they made these records for each other. This, you know, the, the great stories of, of Ian McKay talking about, you know, making their 45s and not even knowing how to do it and, you know, putting them together. And I mean, it was really like, such an underground music and there was no real feeling like, okay, we're going to play in the radio, you know, except maybe college radio. And when Nirvana broke, I mean, capitalism put its foot in that, you know, everybody thought, Oh shit, I can be on the radio. And you look at like the bands that were signed at that time. Like, I mean, you know, Jesus lizard got signed to Capitol. And no one in their right mind would ever imagine that David Yao's voice was going to be a, you know, and I love that band. But, I do I mean, too. You know, but it's like, you know, the, the record companies didn't understand why Nirvana broke and they were just scrambling to make money. And, the, and unfortunately that had a really negative impact, I think, on that scene uh, of the underground scene, so to speak. And you can see how it impacted Kurt Cobain and that band and, and that, a lot of the people were trying to make sense of their success. And, you know, that's what capitalism does. You know, the dollar, I mean, you can look at it internationally, what's happening now. You know, the 1% are running the show and they want to protect it. And it's a lot of money at stake. There's the same amount of money, you know, in terms of uh, how credit works and whatnot and the banks work and Wall Street and whatnot work there's still the same amount of money it's just in less hands and the, the idea that now that trump is in power suddenly there's going to be this resurgence of more interesting art is a is a is a dialectic that doesn't work for me and actually i was very angry about seeing this response in the quote-unquote art community like okay let's now's the time to the time to step up was well before he got nominated by the Republican Party. You know, I mean, to step up after the fact, it's too late now. If you want to step up, we've got probably four years of this. And every day, I mean, it, it's still inconceivable to me that he's the president, you know. And, and art doesn't do a great job with politics. You know, for every Guernica, there are hundreds of thousands of crappy paintings out there that express a kind of rage over a political situation. And that rage is well-founded. I mean, the outrage is well-founded both here in the United States and around the world with what's going on now to average everyday people. But to make a song about that and change the course of history, I mean, that doesn't work too well. 
You know, it doesn't really what, what politics have to be. The, the what do we call it? Uh, the opposition in politics have to take place on the political field. You know, and from my point of view, what we're looking at right now is a failure of many, many systems to inform the public in a way that led them to vote, whether they agreed with my position or not. You know, the disenfranchise, uh, disenfranchise, what's the right? People are disenfranchised, let me put it that way. <laughs> whether they're left-leaning or right right-leaning, centrist, whatever, it's very clear that around the world, everyday people are super pissed off. And they're so enraged and want change so badly that many of them were willing to vote for Brexit and many of them were willing to vote for Trump. And these same people are the ones that are going to be worst at most Part of, I can't even think of the right word. The, the impact on them is going to be the worst. You know, I'm a white male middle class guy who does weird music for a living, and I can survive on that. I'm like very, 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 very lucky, very fortunate. And the circumstances around the world that are happening for people like me, it's going to be weird and strange and probably bad. But more or less, you know, we got through Reagan, we got through both Bushes, um, you know, the changes, both good and bad of the Obama administration. I mean, it's like the boat bounces around, but it stays on the water. For huge amounts of people in this country, Trump being president is going to affect them for generations. I mean, just look at what he's done to the education system. You know, and a lot of those people are the ones that voted for him. So the systems that we've got created a situation where that made sense to people. And and that's a, a problem around the world, that these decisions in democracies where people can vote, they're choosing things that are the worst possible path for them and for their children. And the people in power are really happy with that. Because they want that 1% of AMP, which means everything. It means capitalist power. It means political power. And they found ways to make people angry and then vote against their own best interests. And it's really, really scary. And so, you know, to answer your actual question, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that, that any, I mean, the good art, you know, good art is about making the best art and the morality of trying to do the best possible work, whoever is president, whoever is prime minister, you know, and, and that's the field that that works on. And in some cases it, it does respond to the, it, it has to respond to its, its, its context. And part of its context is political. And there's no question that the environment is going to affect what's being made, but when it's a direct cause and effect, the best direct cause and effect is politics, which means trying to be informed, which means working on your community level to vote for better people in your community and, and build it up. And that's one thing that the Republican Republicans figured out is they, they dominated the, the community level in a way that the Democrats didn't. And that's part of the reason we're in the situation we're in. So I, I think that the art, I mean, I spent a lot of time going to museums and galleries and listening to music and reading books and watching films. And I love art, but the thing that it gives me is hope for independent thinking. It gives me hope and inspiration to do better work myself. It interfaces me with the most amazing people I've ever met. I mean, I just spent six months in Europe before that I was in Buenos Aires for the first time. I mean, the people I get to meet through the work I do, i.e. the music I play, keeps me optimistic for the future of humanity, which is the greatest gift possible right now, considering what's going on. So I think the power of art is, is infinite, but it doesn't work on this correlation directly to politics. Like I'm pissed off. Here's my angry song. You know, like, like Coltrane's Alabama is an amazing statement. And it's one of the rare statements that are directly related to a catastrophe you know, that has power 
well beyond the moment that it was made. That statement goes on and on and on. And there, there are novels like that, and some of that stuff exists. But the thing to do is to be independent. And I think that's the thing that art teaches us. The great people that we talk about, you know, the great rock bands, the great painters, uh, you know, the great writers, these are people who are really independent. Otherwise, they couldn't do what they did. They work in spite of the conditions they were in, whether they were positive or negative. I'm, I'm a middle-class guy. You know, I have food on my table when I get up. I have electricity and water. You know, I've got it really easy. And, and that I look as a privilege that I have, to, I have to own up to. That privilege enables me more time to work on the music I want to do. And if I don't do that, I'm, I, it, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It disrespects everybody who doesn't have all those resources and who wants to do what I'm doing. And if I'm not doing what I can do at the best possible level, then I'm giving the finger to everybody else in the world who would like to have those opportunities. And that's immoral. So I, I think that, 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 this, that art creates incredible circumstances to motivate people to do their own thing. And that is a power that is political, but it works outside of the political sphere in a way to allow people to be individual and think for themselves and hopefully motivate that in the political sphere to get up off their ass and vote all the time. Because if they don't do that, we're going to be stuck in a situation for God knows how long. Yeah, <clears throat> that, that was incredible. Do you think people... Do you think people struggle with trying to find their own independence? Because I think I know a lot of people who look at art or comedians and, and they're like, oh, man, I wish I would have done that. And they it seems like people have a fear to pursue the things that they truly want in life. I think you're right. I think I think you're absolutely right. I always thought, you know, growing up, I mean, I, I had. I couldn't have asked for more support from my family. And even now, I mean, you know, their interest in what I do is, is enable me to do what I'm doing now. I mean, there's no question about it. And I always thought like people who, like when I was younger playing music in high school and then some people stopped playing and then, you know, college and some people stopped playing. And now some people, stopped, you know, when I was younger, I thought, well, they just, they just didn't want to work hard or they just, you know, or they just wanted to get like a normal job or whatever. But, but the truth is that I got the support to believe that it was possible, you know, to be crazy enough to say, yeah, well, why wouldn't you do that? You know, why would, you know, and, and, you know, I worked really hard and I had a lot of really crappy jobs for a very long time to pay my bills, but that worked for me. And I feel incredibly fortunate to be, doing what I'm doing now. I mean, the stuff that I get to experience because of music is priceless. And I think a lot of people just get it beaten out of them. I mean, you look at like day-to-day -day existence, you know, you, you go to the grocery store, you, you turn on the TV. I mean, the stuff that we're getting pounded with, and then never mind the internet, all the media information that is, it, we're bombarded with tells us that we're not good enough. You know, and I'm not talking about like the news. I'm just talking about information, visual information. You know, you look at the front page of quote unquote, an informed newspaper in the United States, the New York times. And I always was struck by this always strange. And it still is. The front page is always at least one elitist advertisement of some beautiful, impossibly beautiful woman wearing some impossibly expensive jewelry or some guy in a suit with an you know, a $200,000 watch or whatever it is. And then, you know, it's next to like some horrific uh, bombing in Afghanistan. <clears throat> you know, we take that information in. We make those associate. I always thought it was weird. Why would a, why would a, you know, a jewelry company want to be associated with like some massive death in the Middle East, but Hey, it works because they, they wouldn't do it otherwise. And so it works probably because people gravitate towards, oh, isn't that beautiful? But it's way out of anybody's reach. You go to the grocery store and you see all these magazines and, you know, like, quote, unquote, woman's interest magazines. And you look at the stuff that's given to women all the time on the covers. Like, these are impossibilities. 
was like Demi Moore. I don't know if you remember this, but I, I remember because it pissed me off so much. She was on the cover of Vanity Fair and she was pregnant. I don't know if you remember this cover. It was kind of famous. Yeah. Okay. So she, and her thing was, I want to celebrate the beauty of a woman when they're pregnant. And this is just me on the cover and you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. That idea that has a lot of merit, you know, they photoshopped that, that image, like four, he ran it through something 14 times to pretty it up. What pregnant woman in the real world can can match that? <laughs> so, the, so the images that, that we're being given all the time, just the imagery is telling us something impossible. And because it's impossible and maybe we don't fully appreciate that, we assume that we're supposed to reach, uh, you know, these standards. We feel badly about ourselves all the time. And this self-loathing is projected in social media all the time. The ongoing rage and 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 frustration that you see constantly in what people write about, and I think that you know we're in a situation where the idea of pursuing your own thing, whether it's in the arts or not, is beaten out of people, you know, and so they end up being, you know, they 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 believe, okay, on some level, I've got to be a cog in a wheel because I'm supposed to have this and I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to have a family. And everything around us is telling us that, even now. You know, I mean, this quote-unquote American dream is still a mythology that, that is per perpetuated and given to people and jammed down their throats on every media possible. And that dream is very hard to achieve. And if you're not achieving it, then you don't feel worthwhile. You don't feel successful. You feel badly about yourself. And I can tell you, like, I've had better conversations with someone who is a plumber who is super into what they do than other musicians who don't give a shit about what they do. They're just doing it by default. Like, they somehow ended up being a musician, and it's a way to get some kind of, I don't know why they would do it, because it's so much work and so little <laughs> reward. But, okay, sometimes people do things that are crazy. But it's like, just to be yourself. There's so many things that people are interested in. There's so many things to share and pursue that if, if people were doing that, like, to, to put it to my own thing, music schools, conservatories, you know, you know, in my experience, when I've asked, been asked to do workshops at, at, a, at a conservatory, nine times out of, 99 times out of 100, the program is, is creating cookie-cutter musicians who have a, a similar skills, set of skills, you know. And all these people were, were teenagers who went in because they were super enthused about music and they wanted to be a musician. And they, they had these amazing dreams about what they could do. And they were probably really individual and personal because they came from all over the United States. Let's just keep it to the U.S. And, and then they go to music school and then that kind of, that's pounded out of them because they've got to like jump through certain hoops to prove that they're, they're a musician. So they got to play scales at a certain this, they got to be able to run chord changes, certainly if it's, if it's a jazz program, let's keep it to that. So, so they're trained to lose their individuality. And at the end of the day, they graduate with a degree in performance. And I've never played with a musician ever in any, I'm going to play with all kinds of musicians all over the world and never was that a qualifier. Never did I walk into a room and said, have anyone asked me or anybody else say, do you have a degree in performance? Because otherwise, you know, you probably can't be in the band. <laughs> never, ever. It's the most ridiculous degree in existence. And, the instead of taking all of those students, thousands of them every year that get dumped into the world with really not thousands and thousands of more opportunities to play music, instead of doing that, if they took all of these different kids and let them do research into what they were interested in musically and develop hundreds of different paths and what's possible with music, what's possible with technology, what's possible uh, on their instruments. You think of that research pool. Instead, it's beaten out of them. And that's true in general life. All the differences of people, the diversity of people, there's this incredible effort to homogenize that because if you have a homogenous public, you have a homogenous outlet for consumer goods. 
And there's, that's what's happening, man. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of basic, you know? And if you've got a lot of differences and a lot of diversity, it's a lot harder to maintain control over that public. It's, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because I've interviewed a lot of artists and they've all said pretty much the same thing that they're like, art school was bullshit. I just, I interviewed Lori Lipton, who I don't know if you know her work. It's incredible. No, unfortunately not. Okay. Uh, I'll send you some link. It, she does these gigantic, very intricate drawings in pencil, and they're like really dark, and they're just crazy and mm-hmm. insanely genius. But she and she was like, she uh, and she's like, art school was bullshit. And I was like, well, then why did you go? And she's like, I needed the supplies. <laughs> was, she just, she was like, she went for the resources and all the teachers were like, your work's not good. You're doing too much of this and not enough of this. And she was like, fuck you. And, mm-hmm. and now she's, you know, she's this very innovative, like influential with w- what she does. And I just mm-hmm. think it's interesting of what keeps, because certain people allow themselves to get, or not allow themselves. It's sort of, trained within us to get beaten down a bit and like be like oh i don't know any better i guess you're right i should do this and what mm-hmm. what kept you because we all have our dark moments as when we're creators of like what the fuck am i doing why didn't i just sell insurance mm-hmm. <laughs> what kept mm-hmm. what kept you going and and knowing that you would get to where you were going that's a really good question um I mean, like I said earlier, I had incredible support from my family. So I always thought, oh, I could do it, you know. I mean, their whole thing was just pay your rent. You know, we don't care what you do. I mean, we support what you do. But, you know, if, when I was interested in music, they were, yeah, go. And, I mean, I grew up seeing lots of music. And I think that that was a, probably a key was that it wasn't just something I wanted to do. I could really envision the experience because I was going to jazz clubs all the time as a kid and as a teenager with my dad. And so I would meet people like Art Blakey and they were amazing and they were super cool to me. It's like a 12 year old, let's say, seeing the, you know, Art Blakey and the jazz musicians. And they were all super excited that a kid liked the music. And these guys are amazing. This is what I want to do. <laughs> you know, it was like tactile. And I think, you know, I was kind of, I don't know how to say, maybe ignorant enough or, or just stubborn enough or whatever, but I kind of just plowed ahead. And I think I was really lucky in that very often the feedback I got was positive, you know, like, uh, okay, let's put a band together in college. And then we, there were places I could play music, uh, original music in Montreal and people would come and it was like, you know, and, and considering my skill level at that time, it's incredible that that occurred. But it's like, oh, okay, you can play shows. And then when I moved to Boston, I met people and, you know, yeah, we're going to play music. We're going to do our own stuff. Why not? Because I had met people that did that. And growing up in the Boston area, I saw incredible musicians playing their asses off to like a half dozen people. And that was normal. Not that that was the goal to play to a few people, but it's like, okay, that's what you have to do sometimes. So it wasn't like, oh, no one's here when four people would show up to hear me or 10 or whatever. And even now I have nights where there's like, you know, a tiny crowd. It's like it comes to the territory. You're playing uncommercial music, non-commercial music. It's like part of the thing is the struggle. You got to you got to face that. And so all these things, I already had references to say, well, you know, if 10 people are at the show, it's not a failure. It comes with the territory. So I didn't feel badly about it. The only time that was really, really tough, and I did question things, was when I first moved to Chicago, the first couple of years I was here, uh, after like some initial, let's say, success with a group, and I got fired, um, and, and a previous musician came back to the group, and for two years, I tried to find people to play with. And, you know, I'd go to even jam sessions, which is crazy that I did that, because I'm, I'm definitely not a, a mainstream saxophone player and I just kept trying to meet people and I kept hitting dead ends and I wasn't school I didn't go to conservatory so my my quote-unquote uh instrumental skills were idiosyncratic let's put it that way (laughs) and and you know I was just beating my head against the wall and I sat around and wrote tunes and and practiced you know and and it was miserable and I never want to go through that again but it 
it was a thing that was necessary in some level on some level because there was no reason for me to continue. Like after many years, let's say, you know, from when I was in high school up through uh, in my mid twenties or whatever, I had had like positive response to what I was doing. And now it was nothing but negative. And for two years, which is at that time, and still is kind of a long time. And it really wasn't until uh, a couple of musicians I still work with now, Pink Kessler and Michael Zwang, they were putting a group together and they had, had, I had played with Kent earlier, a couple of years earlier, and he knew that I was playing. And so they asked me to come in. I had this giant stack of tunes. And they're like, great, okay, we've got a book. And then that kind of started. And at the same time, I went, there's a very, very significant uh, musician in my field named Anthony Braxton. And I went to, he was a hero and is a hero of mine. And I went to see him do a lecture in Champaign-Urbana. And my, my now, uh, the woman I'm married to, uh, Ellen, she encouraged me to bring a cassette recording of a gig I had done in Chicago. And the whole thing was insane because I wasn't even supposed to go to this thing because it was a master class for people who were in the master's program in Champaign-Urbana. I just went to like sit in on a lecture and it ended up sign on, like basically put my name in a list and like completely did stuff I wasn't supposed to be doing just in the off chance I might get to talk to him for a minute. And the way he did it was the thing I believe in. It was like, he didn't do masterclass. He just opened his door and there was like 15, 20 people. He said, oh, we all just get together. We all share ideas. And his whole thing was like, it's a pool of ideas. It's not one-on-one. It's everybody together one-on-one. And he asked me, oh, you got anything? I had that cassette. And he, he, he put it on and all these kids in the program were staring at me like, you asshole. <laughs> Who the hell are you? And he listened to the whole thing and, and he really liked it. And, you know, he's, he's one of the most supportive people in the universe. And he was like, Mr. Vanamark, this is incredible. No licks, no, it's totally unique. Yeah, and that's what I needed to hear. And I walked out of that room and like, man, I'm going to fucking burn this. I'm doing it. And, and so like that, those events, those two events happening almost simultaneously after two years of really depressing, depressing, depressing stuff. That was like, I, I think the key, it was like, damn it, I'm doing it, you know? And the struggle was necessary for me to fully appreciate the support he gave me in that moment. And then meeting Michael and Kent, all those things, you can't write that. You can't predict it. You just got to live through it. And, and those, that configuration and that, uh, uh, of those events happening all together, the confluence of those events, I should say, that was like, I guess you would say the moment where it's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm fighting for this now. And it wasn't like handed to me and it's, you know, it's, it's hard work, but that was probably the key. That's uh how does that feel with, cause then you go on and it does, and you get awarded the MacArthur genius award. Does, does that, when you, what does something, I mean, I can't even comprehend what it would be like to be win or I don't, is that something, I don't even know if you win it. It's you, how does that? Yeah. It's a prize. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, isn't is was that just mind blowing or because some people look at those things differently? And I'm just curious how you viewed that. Oh, it was certainly mind blowing. I mean, no question. I mean, the, the I don't know how they do it now, but when I when I got the prize, you the way it was explained to me is basically it's kind of weird. Actually, you get nominated, you don't know you're nominated for it. Like they have a, some people they ask you know, who know something about the field you're in, because it goes to like, you know, the sciences and, and writing and art and philosophy, and it goes to all different fields. And music sometimes is one of them. And, and, and so people who are experts in that field nominate different musicians they think whose work is interesting. And then over the course of a year, they follow these nominees. And I don't know if it's like every month or whatever, but they say, oh, this person's still doing good stuff. Like, I, you know, and they, you kind of, the pool gets, gets narrowed and you don't know that's happening. So basically I was on tour and, uh, with the Vandermark five and it was fun. We, we had a really rough day cause we were diving from South Carolina to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We were in a horrible thunderstorm the whole way. So the driving was almost impossible and we were really late. Like we basically got to the club 
when the doors were supposed to open and we hadn't even set up our equipment, we're like running in, soaking wet, you know, and I'm stressed out. And someone at the close says, hey, there's a phone call for Ken Vandermark. And I'm like, fuck, this is like before cell phones and stuff. And, you know, the, there was like a, like a, uh, an office phone in this hallway in the, in the venue. And I said, there's a phone in it. And someone on the line is this Ken Vandermark? And I'm like, yeah, I'm super pissed off because I don't have time <laughs> to deal with it. You know, and I'm like, yes, like, it is. What is this about? You know? And like, well, you know, do you have a man? I said, not really. I'm, 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 I'm on tour. I'm loading a band in. We're behind schedule. Um, so he said, well, okay, just give us a minute. You know, do you know who the MacArthur Foundation is? And I'm like, okay, this is just a crank call. You know what I mean? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and they're like, well, we have John Corbett here. He wants to say hello. And John is a good friend of mine. And he, I'm sure, was a big reason that I got nominated. He probably nominated me. And, and he was in this office. And he said, hey, it's John. I'm like, John, what the hell is going on? You know, I got a gig. And he's like, no, sir, this is the MacArthur Foundation. You got to listen to him. And I was like, what the fuck? And, yeah, they, they told me I got the, the prize for music that year. And and that I couldn't tell anybody for except my my immediate family and and, and my wife that that uh because they had to find all the other recipients and and they uh they were all over the world you know they're like some of them were doing work in the Amazon and they had to get all of them because they have to do a public announcement so they're like you can't say anything about it for a couple of weeks and I was like oh, yeah okay <laughs> and so that night I was actually sleeping on somebody's floor. I remember, like, you know, I'm on this rug and like, kind of looking up at the ceiling fan in, in, in Chapel Hill, and I'm just like, this is totally surreal. And then, yeah, it was, the tour continued, and right before, the tour ended in Chicago, and the night before, we were playing in uh, Rochester, New York, and that was when everything got announced. And the phone was ringing off the hook at the at the venue, and everybody in the band was like, "What? what? You know, like every there were people calling from Chicago. There were people calling all, from all over about it." And uh, at that point, you know, they were like, "Yeah, you can see." You know, and so I told the band, that, and they were like, "Shocked to <laughs> you." <laughs> and and then we got to Chicago, and it was like a madhouse. I mean, uh, we put, we were playing a lot of a club called the Empty Bottle. We had like a weekly residency there for several, I don't know, about five years or something. And we finished the tour there and it was, you know, you know, TV crew, like it was a zoo. And, um, the best thing about it, that whole like madhouse wasn't the madhouse, but a, a friend of mine, um, also a musician, a, a really great, uh, electronics musician and Kevin Drum afterwards, he said, man, it was so great when you got it because it, it felt like it was for everybody on the scene. Like it was a recognition for what was happening in Chicago at that time and the, the really incredible cross-pollination going on between the rock scene, which led to groups like Tortoise and the noise scene and, and the improvised music scene and all this stuff coming together in the 90s. It was kind of like an acknowledgement of that work and okay, they pointed their finger at me, but it was like for everybody. And I thought that was a great way to understand it. And and they were cool too, because when the McCarthy Foundation told me I got the prize, they were like, you know, you're the youngest person at, at that time. I was the youngest person who got it for music. And they were very clear about why they did that, which was helpful psychologically. Because the other people who got it were people like Steve Lacey and Anthony Braxton and Cecil Taylor. I mean, they were like my heroes, and had change the face of the music, you know? So how was I going to contend with that? You know, I was like, I don't know how old, 99, 60, I was like 35 or something like that. And they said, look, this is the first time we get into someone that's young because we want to see what happens if someone's given economic resources earlier in their career, what will it change? What will, what will be affected by that? And that was a way I could explain it to myself and to other people who asked because there was a lot of anger over me getting the prize. Like, why did this guy get it? You know, who the hell is Vandermark? You know, he has nothing to do with this, nothing to do with that. And it was, in a way, a nod to the scene going on to Chicago, in Chicago that a lot of people didn't know about and recognition of all the creativity that was happening here. And those things kind of gave me a way to articulate it to myself so I could articulate to other people who had really understandable questions about why they picked me. 
Uh, yeah, that, I mean, I was in Chicago in the 90s, and that there was so... I mean, I would go see you I've, at the, I believe, Luna Cafe. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it was... I And that was... People were like at second. I was at Second City at the time, and people were like, "You have to!" Like everybody at Second City was like, "You have to go see this guy play." And I I went a bunch, and it was, and it, it was just kind of a magical time in Chicago for music in general. I mean, because uh, oh, definitely. And I I fucking wish I would have seen more. That's I that's I don't have a lot of regret and regrets in life, but I'm like I should have went and seen all those bands play and. So I'm a dumbass, in short. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you know, the thing is, like, you don't, it's like, how can you appreciate it? Because you're sitting right in the middle of it. You know, it's good, but, you're, like, I mean, one of the advantages I have in what I do is I get to travel a lot. And I see all these different music scenes all over the world. And even now, what's going on in Chicago is special. I mean, for the improvised music scene, I mean, there's, there's a place to play almost every single night of the week at least one gig going on. And that's like, and that's just the improvised music scene. There's like, all, you know, there's like tons of scenes going on in music in Chicago with venues for that stuff to occur, new people coming up all the time. Like right now, I, I have to say, having lived here since, you know, 89, what's going on in Chicago is the most exciting period since the 90s for me because you've got all these younger players in their 20s doing similar kinds of cross-pollination. They're in rock bands. They're interested in improvisation. They're putting new groups together that mix things in really interesting hybrids that are totally different than other stuff. And it's like a real mashup of ideas again, which is what made that 90s period so extraordinary, I think. And like all these different bands that, that took place that played together, like the stuff that I ended up doing with Dwayne Dennison of the Jesus Wizard. It's like, like in retrospect, like what the hell, you know? But he was into what I was doing. I was super into that band, and then of course, well, of course, you play together. You know, it's like a no-brainer. And and the truth is, that's like much more rare than we can appreciate. You know, if you're in it, you just say, yeah, of course you do that, because that's the way things get done. That's the way new ideas take place. You you get excited and inspired by someone's work. You just want to work with them. And I think that that kind of thing is rare in my experience. And then it's kind of coming back now where people are, you know, it's not like the scene people weren't cooperating or playing together, but there's just more <clears throat> invigoration of different, let's say, aesthetics bouncing against each other, which is part of what was so cool about that 90s period. Yeah, you said something earlier that I've, it's been stuck in my head, and you said just how you turn to art for hope, and I was wondering if there was any specific artists that you return to for to find hope or inspiration like who who those main oh man is that a big question uh, that's a, <laughs> yeah you know i mean there's no question about that um and and it's interesting like i'm trying to think of a, a direct way to answer it i mean i i get inspired by lots of different kinds of work and so for filmmakers, I get really inspired by uh, Jean-Luc Godard because his development of visual language is so extreme. I mean, in a way, he's like Cecil Taylor in that he his early stuff is referencing uh, conventional cinema, and then he keeps going, and he keeps going out and out and out on this limb. And either you're going to go with him or you're not. And like his later work is really, really hard. It's really challenging, but he's like, he's doing it, you know, and that, that's inspiring to me. Like he's making the films that challenge himself. He's making the films he wants to see. He's wrestling with visual language in a way that he understands that maybe in some cases, maybe no one else does. And also like formal concerns and architecture in, in the film. Um, so he's like a major guy, but then another uh, French filmmaker Chris Marker is, is also a major inspiration because he all, he did so many different things. He's this guy who made incredible films like Saint Solier, but also enabled all of this art to happen. He was like really, um, uh, what's the word? Not a networker because I don't like that term. It's a, it's it seems so like self uh, tied to self interest, but he enabled you know incredible. Uh, 
art events to take place. He worked on lots of people's films without getting credit. And the films that he made from a visual standpoint uh, and, and in terms of content, in terms of history, are so incredible. So those are a couple of filmmakers. But, you know, in terms of um, the music I play, the field I'm in, I, I always think of Miles Davis. And I kind of feel like Miles Davis is, is an artist, a musician who is so great that he's kind of overlooked. Like everyone says, yeah, Miles Davis. Yeah, of course, Miles Davis. But when you look at his trajectory from playing with Charlie Parker until he retired in like 1975 or whenever it was, when he met Benji and I in Japan, that stretch of almost 30 years, 25 years, the artistic reach and the challenge that he he made and the inventions of music that he created, I mean, it's awe-inspiring. And his refusal to go back and his, his own interest in just making uh, artistic decisions, I mean, the, the idea that his electric period, he still gets criticized as always a commercial sellout. And to me, that's like the most baffling thing as it means that the people accusing him of that have never listened to those records. I mean, if you listen to On the Corner and you tell me that that's a commercial sellout, then you're you're frigging high in depth because there's <laughs> no way that's a commercial record. It is so strange. It's like futuristic, crazy-ass funk, but completely challenging and abstract. It's an amazing record. And so he he, he constantly inspires me. Duke Ellington for the same reasons. Um Thelonious Monk for being so personal. Um, I love Richard Serra's work, Donald Judd's work for more contemporary art, but Willem de Kooning is one of my favorite. He's probably my favorite painter. Um, my favorite authors are Beckett and, uh, and Thomas Bernhardt. And they're super special, unique. I mean, they're all people that, that, that inspire me because they, they took complete risk and they, they pushed without concern for being successful, without concern for being like meeting conventional standards, they developed their own standards and they demanded that you go with them. You know, I mean, I, I mean, Ellington was a genius in terms of, of, of keeping a large band alive. And he made certain concessions on the surface, like these medleys of his hit tones at the front of his concerts. But he was always writing new music. He was always pushing what resources he had to go further. And if you listen to his later stuff, like Such Sweet Thunder and, and these records that he did with Strayhorn, the distance between those records he was making and the ones that somehow were making near the same time are microscopic. And Allison's stuff is super futuristic at that point. And he kept a big band on the road like 300 days a year, you know, in the 50s. I mean, it was an incredible uh, film, performance film, shot at the Concert of in 1958 in, in Amsterdam. And you can get it, I forget, uh, it's, it's Jazz Icons, I think, put it out. And you can find it, I'm sure it's on YouTube. But it's a band playing in 1958, about a year after the huge success at Newport. And it's, it's shot really well. The sound's incredible. And you listen to that band, it's like, if I could see that band playing now, it would be the most cutting-edge music happening on the planet. And this is from 1958, you know, which is now 60, almost 60 years ago. And, you, and you're just like, man, okay, what am I going to do? <laughs> so it's, it's, those are things that keep me going. <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for your time, Ken. This is... I, it, this has been incredible again, so thank you. Oh, I love talking to you, Matt. And, and, and send me uh, your address. Oh, yeah, Matt Dwyer. He's a wonderful man. Oh, yeah, good old Matt Dwyer. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Um, please keep supporting live, pod, live podcasting. Podcasting and live podcasting. Support jazz. Ken Vandermark and uh, his music. Uh, the man's worked in a great many projects. Uh, and uh, jazz is, to me, is an important music. And so people need to buy and listen to more. The end on that. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah.
tells his funny jokes to all the people. And all the people love to listen to him telling all his funny jokes. Good old Matt Dwyer. Having good conversations with all kinds of people. Lots of interesting people want to talk to Matt Dwyer. Yeah, Matt Dwyer. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.